The word of God says in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. Thank you, Manifé. You can be seated. So until about one song ago, uh, everybody on the live stream couldn't hear us. So you just have to tell Tommy we prayed for him. But uh, yeah, apparently God's up to something. Because uh, how many times have we live streamed now? Six months? Sound hadn't had any problem. But uh, we, uh, we got it going, thanks to those guys back there. They're geniuses. So appreciate that, guys. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your grace, even the grace uh, enough to figure out our technology problems and uh, get this message out uh, to those of us, those in, in our faith family who are not able to come in person. God, we pray that uh, even now as we've just read your word and uh, we've had a chance to sing, uh, we just pray that you'll speak to our hearts and guide us uh, in a way that only you can. God, we, we look to our own hearts and recognize we cannot change ourselves. It's going to take a, a miracle, a miracle of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would do that. And we submit to you that you're the only one who can. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, so the parable that Amanda Faye just read for us is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps it may be one of uh, the most famous of Jesus' teachings. Uh, inside and outside the church, people will use that phrase, the Good Samaritan, and, uh, and people know what you're talking about. Generally, they mean uh, somebody who comes along and does a, a nice deed, a kind deed to somebody, maybe especially a stranger. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been Good Samaritan, if you'll let me use it that way, but I was Good Samaritan once last fall. Uh, my truck, uh, had I could hear something was going wrong. I was literally driving to the mechanic because I knew it sounded bad because uh, I couldn't get it started. Anyway, sure enough, the alternator went out right when I was in the turning lane on uh, Fairview Road, about to take a left on Harrison Bridge Road in Simpsonville. So yes, two five-lane highways, and I'm 25 yards from the intersection, and the, the, won't, I can't budge a bit. You know, I'm just totally stuck right there. And so about the time I hop out of my truck and like scratch my head for a second, some guy comes running up from the other side and says, hey, I'll help you push it into the, the gas station. So sure enough, uh, I just open my door and use the steering wheel, and he pushes it and gets me off into the gas station. I was like, wow, like this, 
angel just dropped out of the sky. Where did you, you know, where did you come from? So he just, you know, was super humble, didn't say anything, and just went into the gas station. And then I stopped, and like, you know, the last 10 minutes is replaying in my head, like, you know, what just happened, and realized I had seen that guy right before my truck died. He was on the side of the road with a cardboard sign. He was homeless, and he jumped across the street, helped me, and then didn't ask for anything. He just went in the gas station. It was like this most incredible, wow, you know, helper moment I've ever had. And that's what, the, thankfully, I did find him, you know, I pieced that together, went and found him. It was good. But it was just like, I got good Samaritan, and I really needed one in that moment. Uh, if, the, if you go out, you know, if, you, if I told that story to a non-Christian group, people would say, yeah, that's, that's a good Samaritan, right? The, the world recognizes there's something good and beautiful about that kind of act. But if you know the parables of Jesus, if you know the way that Jesus teaches, you know there's, there's usually another level to it, isn't there? There's usually one more level that, that's something a little bit, you wouldn't, maybe wouldn't catch it the first time you read it, but it's, it's where the gospel is found. It's what's profound and what's distinctly Christian. And that extra depth is what helps us today specifically apply this, this message in the middle of a, a series we're calling The Gospel and race. And we're calling this series The Gospel and Race because uh, our, our world is so heated right now with different discussions, well, all kinds of different things, but uh, in this one issue uh, around race. And so we, we believe clearly as Christians that the, the foundation, the place where, where we can look to for change, where we can look to for reconciliation, is the gospel. No, no social movement, no political party or agenda, no cultural trend has the power or authority to transform lives and bring true and lasting unity and peace. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has that power. And so we have been spending the, the majority of our time making sure we're, we're, we are grounded in this sure foundation of the gospel. And so to do that, we've outlined the whole series around one way of, of phrasing the gospel, that we, uh, at the beginning, we were created in the image of God. That's what we spoke in the very first week. We were made good in God's image. But at the fall, what we saw last week, we fell into sin with Adam and Eve and the rest of us ever since, ever since with idolatry, pride soon followed by hate, and plunged the rest of humanity into sin. And so today we come to the third step in this meta-narrative, the big picture of the gospel, the story of redemption, that God has worked a rescue mission by sending His Son into the world to redeem us back to Himself at the cost of His own Son's life. And then He resurrected on the third day, which makes the fourth step in God's great plan possible, restoration. That we can be with God forever, which is what we'll see next week. Last week, as we talked about Adam and Eve and their sin and their, their plunging of humanity into sin, we saw the, the, the horrifying ways that shows up in our world today. The same idolatry and pride that they experienced, and then the next generation, Cain, their son, with his hate that led to murder, those same sins show up as racism in today's world. People of different races and ethnicities fighting together. And we saw last week that racism uh, at times can be overt, can be uh, direct. Sometimes it can be more subtle, a prejudice, a partiality, whether it be individuals or groups or whole systems. However it may show up, the, the sin of racism and partiality is clearly wrong in the Bible for a multitude of reasons, one of which is breaking the second, second greatest commandment, 
Loving your neighbor as yourself. That's clear, right? We, we have no problem with that. But when we get to the New Testament, like, like our own hearts want to do, sometimes we, we question that just a little bit. And in the New Testament, a man, a lawyer, comes up to Jesus at one point and asks this question. Who is my neighbor? Can't you just, can't you just feel the, the conniving there? Yes, 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 love my neighbor, but who, who is my neighbor? If we're called to love our neighbor, it's important to ask that. Well, who, who is my neighbor? And also, I might add to that, what does it mean to love them? What does it mean to love them? Does it mean just pushing their truck out of the middle of the road? Or is it something else? Is it more than that, too? Jesus answered both those questions. Who is my neighbor and, and how do I love them in a classic Jesus way? He tells a story. He brings us in. Jesus very well could have just given a, a one-line, pithy statement that we all just went, wow, you know? But this time, he, he draws us in with a story, one we can, we can picture in our minds and in our hearts. Je- Jesus, his whole, his whole life as this uh, incredible man, God himself had become becoming man, taking on flesh. His, his whole life drew people in. And he would use these stories, these parables, to draw people in. But as they came in, they realized he was more than just a master teacher. His life was the parable. His life was living this out in such a way that you recognize it's not just what he says, it's what he did. Jesus' whole life was about coming and he brought down major barriers. The barrier between us and God, sin that separates us. He brought down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. He brought down the barrier between Jews and Samaritans. And many of you, as we've had this discussion, have brought up the powerful story of the woman at the well. A Samaritan woman, Jesus was willing to come to a woman uh, 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 who was uh, outcast from her own society because of her past. And here's a Jewish man who's a religious leader, and he treats her like an equal, and he loves her and brings her to eternal life. This is who Jesus is. And so when he tells this story that also features a a famous, perhaps the most famous Samaritan, he brings us into it in such a way that we can see, if we can dwell in this story for a moment, we can see applies in so many ways. So before you get, we get to your bulletin and outline points, I, I just want us to soak in this story for a moment because it's beautiful. The parable that Jesus tells comes to, comes to us after a, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks that impure question. You know, uh, well, he starts with a, a better question. You know, how should I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, in his you know, great master teacher way, answers a question with a question. <laughs> says, well, what do you say? He points to the law. He says, what does the law say? So this lawyer knows the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, you got it. So then the lawyer comes up with his conniving question. He says, well, <clears throat> you know, who, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole in the law, isn't he? He's looking for a loophole in the law. He's a lawyer, and he, he knows that law. He knows the Old Testament law, what we call the Old Testament. He, he knew the Scriptures. And so he's like, you know, I bet that doesn't apply. There's probably a category of people that, that I can just write off. That way I don't have to apply this everywhere. It'd be easier for me if you kind of narrowed that down for me, Jesus. Who, who is my neighbor? He's trying to find a, a, a way to obey the, the letter of the law without the intention of it. You know what I mean? You know how we all do that? We all, what's the minimum requirement? How, how low can I set the bar so I make sure I can get over it. So Jesus could have, again, just given a one-line answer, but he draws us into this story, 
And he starts with this parable. And it starts with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it says, He falls among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The path from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 15 miles. And Jerusalem is some 2,500 feet above sea level. And Jericho is one of, if not the lowest city uh, elevation-wise in the world. It's about 850, 860 feet below sea level. So in 15 miles, there's a lot of ground to cover. And this was not on a, a well-paved, Panagakis asphalt-type highway coming down that, that mountain, right? It's a slow, windy path with lots of switchbacks. And it became notorious in this time period for, for all that, that trail to give robbers and thieves places where they could all hide out and attack unsuspecting travelers. So along that path, these men jump and they, they, they uh, get this one man, beat him, strip him, leave him half dead, and rob him of everything he has. He's stranded. He's helpless. He has absolutely no way to help himself. But it just so happens that a priest comes by. Now remember, this man was going down. It's very clear. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The priest, too, is going down the path. So he's not going to the temple. He just left the temple. He was just at church, and now he's leaving church. You know what I mean? So when you look at this and you think, okay, the priest, I know there's some ritual Old Testament things about impurity. Maybe, he, maybe he's going to ignore him because of impurity. He's not going to the temple. He, is, he has no excuse for passing by. Well, maybe he, you know, he just isn't. The only way he's going to be impure is if the man dies. So if he tries and helps him and he, he doesn't die, then he's not impure. But he decides, this priest does, to go by on the other side. That would have been a, a stunning thing to hear to this Jewish lawyer that Jesus is talking to. The priest, the religious guy, he didn't help. Well, the second guy's a Levite, okay? He's another temple worker. He works in the, surely this guy will help. Nope. He too, it says, goes by on the other side. That would have been very difficult for a, a Jewish audience to hear. These are our, these are our guys. These are our leaders. How, how, could they, how could they treat somebody that way? They have a moral obligation to help. Both of these people served in the temple. They're religious and in multiple ways have been survived. So, so today that equivalent would be, you know, you guys all, all head out. Aaron and I are the last ones to leave today, driving separately. And uh, we come up here to the four-way stop, and there's a family uh, that's trying to change a tire right there at the intersection. And it's obvious that their hands are just full of kids and everything. They just need another set of hands to change a tire. Aaron or I probably could do that, no problem. But we decide, you know what? <clears throat> I'm good. And we just keep on driving by. If you watched that happen, you would be embarrassed of us. You, you would think, how, how could you? How could you do that? You just left church of all places much less your position in the church. But honestly, as the lawyer's listening to this, he, he might have understood why, because maybe that parallel of the gas station isn't quite the same, because think about it. These guy, this guy that was just robbed and mugged and beaten is on a windy path on the side of a mountain. He's beaten by robbers, and that guy didn't see the robbers coming. So anybody who stops to help this guy is putting himself in the same place. He's a sitting duck. Who knows where those robbers are now? So maybe better than a well-lit 
gas station in the middle of the day. This is a, the equivalent of a, a dark alley in the side of town that maybe isn't, is known for crime. And so as you think about judging the priest and the Levite, you think, well, they're absolutely wrong. But it sure would have been hard to stop and help somebody at the risk of your own life, wouldn't it? If you saw somebody in a dark alley and they were beaten and robbed, you'd be thinking, those guys must be around somewhere. And our cell phones and calling 911 kind of bail us out of that situation a little bit now. Take that out and it becomes very complicated. But still the picture here is that this is an embarrassing moment, an embarrassing description of the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the good guys and yet they didn't help. That sacrifice, the sacrifice it would have taken, shouldn't have been enough to stop them, but it was enough for the first two. If you're the lawyer listening to this, maybe you're expecting the next, next person to come along. You know, here's these religious leaders. Maybe the next one is just a, an average Israelite, just a, a regular Joe kind of guy. Maybe he's going to come in and save the day. But of course, the shocking part of Jesus' parable is the third person that comes by is a Samaritan. If you've been around the, the, the Bible for a little while, you, you may know that, that that was not a, uh, if we hear that word Samaritan, we think of this parable, we think these are the good guys. But to the first century world, to the Jewish people, they think enemy. That's the very first thing they think. The, the, the tension between Jews and Samaritans had been going on for 700 years at this point. The Samaritans were a group of people who lived in the northern part of Israel. Previously, they were just Israelites. But the Assyrians came in and they conquered the northern part of Israel. And they sent some of their own people to live there. And so eventually the, the, the Israelites and the Jews, uh, the Israelites and the Samarians, some, the Assyrians began to intermarry. And so they formed a different group called the Samaritans. And with the blending of ethnicities, they also blended up religion. And so the Jews looked then now at these Samaritans and thought of them as a lesser class. They thought of them as ethnically mixed and their religious practices are off. And so in every way possible, they, they viewed them as second class, as enemies, as not a part of the same system. Anyone who would have been listening, any Jewish person who had been listening to this story would have been shocked to hear a Samaritan enter the story at all, much less be the hero. And Jesus does more than just make him a little bit of a hero. He is an incredible hero. The Levite and the priest, they just got one verse, right? You read through, they just came and they went around. They came and they went around. But the Samaritan, it's like Jesus is hunkering down. I mean, every word in these parables is so rich with meaning. He doesn't waste any words. And so he slows down here with the Samaritan and describes every step of the care that the Samaritan takes for this man. The Samaritan man sees the man in need. And not just like he happens to notice him. He sees him enough to have compassion on him. That's the Bible's word for feeling something deep in your gut. Compassion for somebody. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds. He, he, he dressed his, his physical needs right there on the side of the road. He was willing to use his own oil and wine that he had with him to clean out those wounds and to treat them. And then he gave up his spot riding on his animal. He, he put the wounded man on the animal, which means now the Samaritan has to walk. And now they go into town. He brought him to a place where he could begin to recover. And he didn't just drop him off and say, I hope you're well. He stays with him and he takes care 
of the wounded man. The next morning, he ensures that this man would be well taken care of. He leaves the innkeeper with two denarii, two days' wages. But then he does something even more. He writes him a blank check. He says, do whatever it takes to take care of this man. If he would not have done that, and that man stayed there for a month, six weeks, to try to get better where he could go out on his own, he wouldn't have had any way to pay the innkeeper. Remember, he was naked. He lost everything when he was robbed. So he would have been forced to go into slavery. So essentially, the Samaritan saves him from slavery by writing an empty check to the innkeeper. Whatever you need, he says, I will repay it when I return. Jesus' parables are so remarkably concise and to the point, there's no waste of word. He's, he's giving all those descriptions, all those details, so that we, we'd be able to see this. The good Samaritan, he loved without limits. He loved without limits. That's the first point on your handout this morning. The good Samaritan loved without limits. Think of all the ways that the Samaritan could have chosen to limit his love. There are so many places where he could have said, I'll help you up until this point. And once you cross this limit, I'm done. Right? I'm done. Here's, here's the spot I'm stopping. He, he, could have, he could have said, I've been willing to help you, but my own life is at risk if I stop. I would help you if it was somewhere else and was safe. But because it's, going to call, it's risking my own life, I, I won't help you. That's a limit he could have stopped at. And he decided not to. That didn't limit his love. He could have been, uh, tried to, he could have, uh, been limited by not wanting to get messy. Both physically, I mean literally this guy's probably covered in blood. That was not a pretty day, right? But also this was not going to be like a, you know, just hand a $5 bill thing and, and move on. His life was going to be upended. He was going to get involved with this person. This was, this was going to be a messy process, messy people that he was willing to get involved with. He could have been limited by doubtful success. Doubtful. I mean, this guy says he was literally half dead. So that's a way of saying he had a 50-50 chance of living, which means there's a 50% chance that the Samaritan could do all of this and the man still die and it all be for naught. So he could have said, yeah, I would help you, but it looks like you're probably going to die anyway, so I just, I can't, it's just too much for me. Or he could have been limited by their ethnical, ethnic differences. He could have said, your people don't, don't like my people. We're, we're, we're not friends. We, we don't hang out. We happen to see each other today, but you're not my people. I'm not your people. You wouldn't help me if I was there. And so he could have said, I, I'm not doing it. Maybe the Samaritan knew the history. He knew the hundreds of years of animosity between these groups of people. And that could have been the limit. He could have said this, if, if, you, were, if you were a Samaritan in the same situation, I'd help you. But because you're not like me, I'm not going to help you. That could have been the limit he put up. Maybe he specifically thought of individuals he knew, not just in general that the people don't get along. Maybe he specifically knew some Jewish people who had been brutal to his fellow Samaritans. Even that wasn't a limit, did not limit his love. Maybe it was the limited amount of time. I'd help you, but this is, I got places to go. I got things to do. I got, I got people to see. You riding on my, on my donkey and me having to walk is going to take me a lot longer to get to Jericho. Or maybe it's a limit of money. I'd help you, but I got, I got bills to pay. 
I got things to do. I got, I got people to take care of. None of that stopped the Samaritan from loving this man on the side of the road. He loved without limits. Remember, this parable is Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? So in verse 36, Jesus again makes the lawyer answer his own question. And he says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And remember the three choices, the way that Jesus described them. The priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. But how does the lawyer answer the question? He can't, he can't bring himself to, to use the same ethnic description that Jesus did. He simply says, the one who showed him mercy. This lawyer isn't to the same place the Samaritan was. He, he can't get past their, their, their ethnic differences. He, he gets the, the, the answer is clear here. But it's like Jesus has given this guy the opportunity to recognize the, the unity that should be between these people, and the lawyer can't do it. Clearly, there, there is no and should be no limit on who is our neighbor. The lawyer was looking for a, a loophole to try to avoid having a, uh, too many neighbors or having to neighbor too many people. You know what I mean? He, he was trying to limit it down to the least possible answer. And Jesus says, there, there is no limit. You can't put a limit on your neighbors. And you can't put a limit on love. Your neighbor is anyone and everyone, and especially someone in need. Your, your neighbor is anyone and everyone, but especially if you come upon somebody in need, that is your neighbor. The call to love your neighbor is the call to be a neighbor to anyone who needs a neighbor. That's what it looks like to be following the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that, isn't that an encouraging and helpful thing as we think about racial tensions around us? No, no, no group, no, no, especially let's just speak to Christians, no Christian group can look to some other group and say, I, I would love you, but my, my limit start stops here. Your sins, your actions, your group, what you said, that, that's the limit I'm drawing. I would love you like my neighbor, but here's the limit. The Good Samaritan is the one that teaches us that you can't, you can't draw boundaries. You can't draw lines around who I want to be my neighbor and who isn't my neighbor. If, we lived, if, if, if the Good Samaritan was here, who would he love? How would he respond in this moment? He would look at every side of everything that's going on and say, that's my neighbor. That's my neighbor. So can we just, can we say that? Can we say, George Floyd is my neighbor. Brianna Taylor was my neighbor. Every police officer who's doing great things and is doing things the way they should and is doing a great job to help keep us safe, that police officer is my neighbor. And every police officer who's made a mistake and has messed up, he's also my neighbor. We don't, we don't pick and choose sides here and say, I'm going to love some and not love another. There's, there's no limit. We can't, we can't draw a boundary and say, I'll love you and I won't love you. We love our neighbor, which is anyone and everyone, especially anyone in need. So in addition to the question, who is my neighbor, what, what does it mean to actually love them? How do you love somebody? Well, again, it's that great sacrifice. The Samaritan stopped at the risk of his life 
in order to love his neighbor. Was that easy? Was that simple? One day, you know, no, it was painful. So it's worth stopping and saying, okay, how do we love our police officers well? How do we love our brothers and sisters and different minority groups that are affected and in pain right now? What does it look like for us to listen and say, why are there protesters in the street? Why is this happening? It'd be easier for us to just form our opinions and just move on. That, that would not cost me anything, you know? But to love a neighbor is to say, there's no limit. I'll, I'll listen. I'll figure out what's happening and see how we can lay down our lives to make a difference. That's a start on loving without limits. But there's one major interpretive part of this parable that we haven't, we haven't touched yet. Do you remember who came to Jesus and tried to test him with this? It was a lawyer, right? What's his ethnicity? He's Jewish. He knows the Jewish law. He's able to recite back the Jewish law. This is a Jewish man. And so as Jesus is telling him this story, clearly the, the, this lawyer, he's, he's answering, he's, Jesus is answering his question. So the lawyer is supposed to associate himself with somebody in the parable so that he can figure out how he's supposed to love his neighbor. Now, when you and I read this, uh, we want to be like the Samaritan, right? We look at the Samaritan and say, that's the hero, that's who I want to be like. And that's true in the end. <laughs> but think about who heard it first, the lawyer. He would not have associated himself with the Samaritan. That is his enemy. He is not that guy. Whatever else he is in the story, he's not the Samaritan, because that was his, his arch enemy. Well, was he the priest? No, he's not the Levite, not the priest. Those are specific religious titles. And this guy, we're told, is not that. He's a lawyer. So who's left? When the lawyer hears this story for the first time, he recognizes that Jesus is telling him, you're the man on the side of the road. You're not the man who has come to rescue somebody. You're the one who needs a rescuer. You are the one who needs a Savior. And that's what makes this parable so powerful. The brilliance of Jesus' parable, and if you take nothing else away from this parable today, take this away. Before we can be a good Samaritan, we have to realize that we're the ones in need of a good Samaritan. We come to this story wanting just a good moral example, but we get far more than that, and it's far better than that. We need somebody to rescue us. We are on the side of the road. We are in the ditch, helpless. And if nobody helps us, we sure can't help anybody else. We need a hero long before we could ever consider being a hero for somebody else. Think about how different this parable would have been if the last character, if the third one was, was a Jewish man and a Samaritan was on the side of the road. If Jesus would have told that to this Jewish lawyer, he could have responded one of two ways. He could have said, no way. If I was that way and a Samaritan was on the side of the road, I'd have left him. He, he's good as dead to me anyway. Or he could have said, yeah, aren't we Jewish people good? We even love those little guys, those, you know, those awful Samaritans. He could have gone either way if that's how the story was said. And that's what he wanted. Did you hear how, Jesus, how the, the Samaritan asked the question or how the motives? We understand because Luke is through Jesus. He knows the motives. Verse 39, it said, and desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? What this guy wanted to do was pat himself on the back and say, 
I'm doing just fine the way I am. I don't need to change a thing. I don't need to change a thing. Wouldn't that be great? We all would love that. We'd love to justify ourselves and say, I'm doing great. I don't need to change a thing. But when Jesus tells this parable, it's obviously that's not going to be the case. He wants to be proud of himself. He wants to be proud of his own accomplishments and what he's done. He doesn't want to think that he needs any help from anybody. He's got it. But it's not true. We can feel the lawyer's pride and arrogance, desiring to justify himself, but we do that too, don't we? Every time we, 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 we look to our own actions and make excuses, shift the blame, don't take responsibility, point the finger, I'm not perfect, but look at them, you know? We're just, we're just putting ourselves on a scale and saying, as long as I'm better than somebody, I'm not the worst. But we have to understand, we're, we're not the heroes riding in to save the day today. We, we are not the, the, the Samaritan on the, maybe he had a white horse, you know, just because that would make it, good. Yeah. riding on the white horse of the Jerusalem donkey, whatever it was. We, we, we aren't the Samaritan. We need a Samaritan. We need a Savior. So before you can even begin to apply the, the parable, you have to receive the one who taught the parable, Jesus himself. You see a chapter before this parable in Luke, uh, Luke 9.51, when it says, it says this in 9.51, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is telling this story about this, what happened on the road away from Jerusalem. He's telling that on the road to Jerusalem. And do you remember why he's going to Jerusalem? He's going to Jerusalem to lay down his life, to sacrifice everything. You see, this parable is in the middle of a moment where he says, I'm, I'm on the way to be the good Samaritan you need most. When we read this on the way to the cross, cross, we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. Because like the good Samaritan, Jesus loved us without limits. Jesus loved without limits. Like the Samaritan, Jesus saw our desperate need, that we had no way to save ourselves. And He didn't just see us, He saw us with compassion. I looked at that word. You can go find that, that original word, compassion. Uh, it's translated compassion or pity a few times, different ways in the New Testament. It's 12 times in the New Testament. Nine of them are used directly to describe Jesus, that Jesus felt compassion or pity for somebody. All three of the other times are in parables that Jesus taught. Two of the other ones, uh, are, so two other times, one's the par- this parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, the other one in Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, a servant who owes an insurmountable amount of debt, and the master feels compassion for this man and forgives him. So obviously that's a picture of God himself. And the other parable where that's told is in Luke 15, about the parable of the prodigal son. With the younger son, as he's returning home, it says the father spots him a long way off, and he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, when Jesus uses this word compassion, he's talking about his own heart the heart that Jesus has for us. So what a remarkable word to put into the heart of the, the, the Samaritan, how he felt on that day. He was being Jesus to that man. He felt compassion. Jesus felt compassion for us, and he comes and he binds up our deepest wounds. His, his actions are life-saving. He, he brings us into a, a place, into his home to bind us up, 
And He pays for our sins. Because if it were not for His payment, we would spend the rest of our life in slavery like the Jewish man would have for all the debt he would have accrued. And Jesus did that, like the Samaritan, even more, not just at the potential risk of his life, but knowing it would cost him his life. Knowing that he would have to go to the cross. And Jesus paid for it all. And he did that for a group of people, for you and for me, and all who would believe in him, not while we were pretty, not while we were cheering for him, not while we were happy about him. He did it for us while we were his enemies. You see, that's the, the incredible, mind-blowing way that Jesus uses the Jew and Samaritan relationship here. He says, you think that relationship's tough? You think black-white's tough? White-Hispanic's tough around here? Con consider the difference between God and us. Consider how much animosity and sin that we were sending back to God. And yet He loved us. Romans 5 talks about that Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Far more separated than any Jew or Gentile or Samaritan or black or white was us and God. And Jesus came to us while we were His enemies and brought us and reconciled us to Himself. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. We're the guy in the ditch. We're in the guy in need of rescue. We're in the guy in need of redemption. We're the guy who has an incredible payment that needs to be paid. And Jesus said, I got it all. I got it all. If you, like the, the rest of the world, just read this parable as a good moral story, then, then yeah, you might stop at the four-way stop and help somebody when, when they got a flat tire, because that, you know, 15 minutes or so, and, and you're on your way. But if you hear the gospel first, then the limit of your love grows a lot, doesn't it? Because you see how much you were loved. And if you see how much you're loved, it transforms your ability to love. If we have the proper motivation, it changes everything. You left up to our own natural hearts, we may do a little bit, but there would be a very small limit on our love. But if the gospel has changed us, it changes everything. If you've received love without limits, then this parable calls us to show love without limits. If you've received love without limits, then show love without limits. The Jewish lawyer had to see first that he was the guy in need of a rescue if he was ever going to be helpful in rescuing somebody else. You can hear in Jesus' final command this call to obedience when he says go and do likewise the lawyer wasn't prepared that day he wasn't ready to do that because he wasn't even willing to name this guy that the Samaritan was the good guy he wasn't ready are you are you ready to go and do likewise I'll tell you how for sure you're not ready the way you know you're definitely not ready is if you're looking around at somebody else and you say that I'm drawing a limit this is the line I'll love up to this point but these people who do this or say this or vote this way or do whatever, they are over the line. And I will not, I will not love them. I will not neighbor them. If, if that's where your heart is today, then, then we haven't really heard the gospel. We haven't really heard the rescue mission that Jesus accomplished for us. That you were far further away, much further away than anybody else in this world 
from God when He sent Jesus to be our rescuer. Maybe when it comes to race, we think, well, you know, I haven't done anything outwardly wrong, or I don't call people names, or I don't speak directly against people, you know, too publicly at least. So, uh, you know, I, I've met the minimum requirement uh, of being a, a good guy, you know. But I wonder if when we look at the Samaritan and see how much he loved, not just who he loved, but how much he loved, if all of us could look to our hearts and say, you know, I've been limiting this in some way. And I wonder how God might use me to extend those boundaries, push those boundaries, and love people in an even greater way. There's a man named John Newton who lived in the 1700s. And one of his early jobs that became his lifelong career what he was, was that he was the captain of a slave ship. He literally was in charge of carrying hundreds of Africans out of the continent of Africa to different places in the Western world to be sold as slaves. That was his job. That's how he made his money. One day in 1748, that his ship was in a dramatic storm trying to make it back to England. And that, that moment for him was this dramatic experience, and it was the beginning of a conversion. But he continued in the slave trade until the mid-1750s. In 1778, he wrote a tract called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade that described the horrific conditions of the slave ships. And Newton apologized for his participation in this. And he began to actively empower and encourage other people like William Wilberforce who became abolitionist in the parliament in England. He said in that tract, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I once was an active instrument in the business at which my heart now shudders. He renounced the slave trade and worked with Wilberforce and others to begin overcoming this terrible and awful institution. And so that through his work and Wilberforce and others, eventually one day the slave trade would be completely eradicated from the entire British Empire. A one, he went from being one who was participating and profiting in that business to one who was working and achieving the, the complete, complete cancellation, stopping of that entire industry. And if that story or that name sounds familiar, John Newton, it's because you know him as the author of the most famous hymn ever, Amazing Grace. So today we're going to close in singing that song as people who have been rescued, who have been brought off the side of the road, out of the ditch, at great cost to our Savior while we were His enemies. And if you've received that kind of love, a limitless love, our prayer today is that that would transform us to loving others without limits. Let's pray. God, we come today singing humbly before you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we look to our own hearts and recognize the filth and the ways that we have not loved you. We have not obeyed you. We have not followed you. And yet, God, in all of that, it did not stop us, did not stop you from loving us. So, God, we come today begging for that transformation to happen, either for the first time or to a whole different level. 
so that we can love you truly and love others without limits today. Maybe during our closing song, you want to continue in this spirit of prayer. Maybe it means keeping your seat or coming to the altar, coming to pray with me. But I wonder if today, in a new way, you can experience the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. And if so, maybe you can lay your life before God and say, Lord, I want to receive this grace, this love, and I pray that you would help me show it to others. Let that be your prayer today. God, we need you to work powerfully in our hearts today in the way that only your spirit can. In Jesus' name.